0: Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to episode two hundred and nineteen. Um, today, talking about flooring perspectives on pattern floors. Um, <laughs> just just a note: I was uh, today in a uh, flooring flooring place selling tiles and things like that, and uh, vinyl flooring flooring made of masonite flooring made of uh, particle board and sawdust and, and glue I mean oh my god just bad bad stuff but so let's talk about pattern floors um past okay so let's get into this episode so let's talk about some uh I mean this this these pattern floors were a regular part of interior architectural woodwork and uh for I don't know, a good hundred years, primarily a lot through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So So one of the important things is learning how to match materials. An important point to bear in mind, one we often forget is that wood floors are made from a natural material. Oak in particular was very popular for flooring during the late 19th century and was often sold in a grade called rift and quartered that essentially does not exist today. How sad is it? Most modern flooring is flat sawn, a cut where the lumber is sold, roughly tangential to the growth rings. This produces the familiar flame-like pattern on the top surface. Beautiful in individual pieces, but less common in turn of the century flooring. In contrast, Quarter-sawn flooring is solved so that the width of the lumber is roughly perpendicular to the growth rings. This method is time-consuming, wasteful, and expensive. However, quarter-sawn flooring is coveted because it is thirty percent to fifty percent more stable than flat-sawn wood in terms of warping, contracting, and expanding. It also has a very uniform surface density that wears well making for a very, very tough floor. The cut is also desirable because it produces a visual effect of fleck, which is the ray cells viewed in cross section. rift sawn flooring is defined a variety of ways, but it's generally considered to be lumber-soled, so its width is almost perfectly perpendicular to the growth rings. It too has a very distinct appearance. Rift saw flooring doesn't show the fleck, but it does have an even grain pattern that makes a very elegant floor, considering it's out of oak. Rift and quarter saw flooring is graded to have a mix of these two cuts. So I, I've had difficulty finding rift and quarter saw grade material that is similar to the flooring used in the turn of the century. Recycled boards are increasingly available especially in softwoods, soft but the remaining and the remilling usually leaves them thinner than normal and often difficult to incorporate, incorporate them into repairs. Otherwise, machine-made tongue-and-groove flooring hasn't changed much in over a century. Today, many boards are relieved with a hollow or scratch back. Micro-bevels are sometimes used to eliminate the need for sanding the slight irregularities of a new, newly laid floor some boards have no tongues only grooves and fit together with loose splines in floors with short boards or complicated parquetry patterns grooves on the board ends help in laying the floor and keeping it flat bundles of splines can be purchased from flooring suppliers custom sawing is also an option in one case i was able to find a supplier of rift and quartered material Since picking through a load of random cut material for what I need and would be required for a large order, I realized it would be less expensive to find a mill in Pennsylvania, one I've dealt with for many, many years, to select the logs myself and have the flooring sawed and kiln dried to my specifications. Newly milled wood needs to be completely seasoned. Air drying floors of less than one inch thickness takes about a year, certainly less than six or eight months. So let's talk about moisture and protection. New or old, any flooring material that comes to your site has to, accu- has to acclimate to its environment. It should not be stacked in the same room or in the adjacent room with the same climactic conditions. This, it does, not mean storing the flooring in an outbuilding or basement, then moving it when you're ready to do the floor. If time is an issue, it pays to sticker the boards. Stickering is time-consuming. I try to get the wood as early as possible and stack it with spacer sticks every five or six boards. These spacers should be placed close to each other to support the flooring and prevent sags. I allow vertical space between the boards so air can circulate, and space between the pile and any walls. Depending upon conditions in any room, four to six weeks time will allow the boards to fully acclimate to the environment where they may spend the next 100 years or more. A fan, not an open window, will speed up the process. The moist months of the year are the worst for laying floors. Especially midsummer. First, the boards expand as they acclimate to the high humidity level. Later in the heating season, the boards dry out and shrink again, leaving gaps. The ideal times for laying new floors are the moderate seasons of spring and fall. The tightest year round floors are laid in winter, but allowances must still be made for some expansion, or you may subsequently find the boards buckling or suffering a compression set, and I've seen boards actually blow the walls outside of houses where an inadequate amount of uh, space is left. There seems to be two schools of thought regarding when floor work should be rescheduled on a project, first and last. Certainly, the building must be fully weathertight with no water entering. In addition, floor work should not coincide with wall plastering or concrete pouring as they both introduce a lot or a plethora of moisture into the air. There's a lot to be said for doing floor work early on, perhaps taking it through the sanding stage, and then doing the final finishing after the bulk of the work is complete. This way, cabinets can be set and baseboards scribed to the floor, though sometimes the floorboards are scribed to the baseboard. Doing the floor restoration in the beginning often yields better results because there tends to be more time, patience, and money, and do a careful job. And it's always better to have uh, be doing this job when you're solo or you have a worker or apprentice in your place and you have no one hovering over your back. It's always a, a nuisance to have a client or potential client hovering over your back. So whatever type of floor that you have, Protect it while other work is going on, the most basic insurance is a carefully laid layer of building paper. I generally put down a layer of upson board available at most lumber yards as easy curve and tape all the joints with duct tape. Upson board is appropriately the thickness of three pieces of skirt cardboard and is lighter and easier cut than masonite. It offers very good protection if demolition, scaffolding, and other major work is planned. The floor should be covered with plywood. Always be sure to sweep the floor clean first. Generally, it is a good idea to use paper as the first layer, no <clears throat> no matter what goes on top of it. So picking up a floor. Sometimes, sadly, there are situations where the floor is fine. It's what's underneath is the problem. With patterned floors, planning and a lot of careful work is required to take up the floor and lay it back down properly before you begin work. Good photographs may suffice for simple jobs and will be available in any case. In the event that a whole floor needs to be replaced, it must be accurately drawn so the patterns can fit precisely within the walls. I use a photocopy of a photo or drawing as a map and label all the boards. It's important to devise a labeling system, then mark the drawing of each floorboard. If the floor is not tongue and groove, both the location and the alignment of each board must be recorded. Chalk is a quick and easy method, particularly for cleanup. So once the boards are up, the chalk numbering is is not quite good enough. The boards always end up getting moved a few times. So I I found that uh, often open floors for work by other trades with the plan to close it back up the next day Yet this rarely happens, and days turns into weeks when other trades will open a floor up. And I tend to lose contact with that, and then there may be a lot of mayhem and controversy when the floor needs to be put down. So you should either engrave the numbers on the back or the bottom of the floorboards or use an oil marker. Masking tape and a little little pencil mark just doesn't quite get it at this point of the game. Keeping the boards stacked and bundled neatly. It is also critical to determine and record the exact space between each board. One good method is with shims. Before the boards are lifted, slip a piece of of copper sheet, metal shim stock, or whatever you may have between them. Popsicle sticks could work for big gaps. The goal is to find a material which is not compressible and slips snugly between each board. Select one thickness by testing several areas or If there is great variation, use two different thicknesses. When you rely on the boards, place the shim between the shoulders of the boards. Pry the boards tight, nail them home, and slip the shim out. It can (coughs) seem contrary to carefully relay a floor with gaps between the boards, but the result is often an invisible repair. Frequently, in order to lift a section of flooring, I have to destroy a board or two. So if you're starting against a wall and are lucky, you may be able to pry the first board out with patience and no damage. After the first board is up, it is basically a matter of prying one board after another. It's not difficult. A hack blade is a very helpful tool <coughs> and, can slip, and it can be slipped under a board and saw in the nails flush with the floor. Adhesives and floor mastics were virtually never used on full thickness older floors. Background on subfloors. When there's a problem above a pattern floor, there's frequently a problem below, either the subfloor or the structure of the supporting of the subfloor. Early plank floors were laid on the planks running perpendicular to the joists. A subfloor came into use when they were laid the same way, and the finished floors were laid perpendicular to the subfloor, which would be parallel to the joist. So this knowledge will often allow you to predict the joist locations also. So around 1850 or 1860, someone got the idea of laying the subfloor diagonal to the joist. This created a more stable base, as well as enabling new designs to be executed in almost any direction. By 1900, early plywoods were increasingly used as subfloor material. Today, plywood and other manufacturers' wood sheet stock are used for the vast majority of new restoration work. It is very helpful to eliminate squeaks in the subfloor when you have access to it. Some people lay a sheet of subfloor with a slight gap of one sixteenth between each panel. The theory is, inevitably, the boards will move, and if they have nothing to rub against, they cannot make noise. Others butt and glue the edges of the sheets. Some subflooring stock is sold with a tongue and a groove milled into it, though I find this material awkward in the use because of its unusual dimensions. Both methods seem to work with careful installation. Gaining access to a subfloor requires a bit of luck. If the problem is in the basement, you can usually open up the ceiling, particularly if it's in ceiling, that actually still kind of peels back nicely. If ceiling work is needed, it may create a new place to get at the subfloor. Barring an easy avenue, one has to choose at least the least intrusive access to the particular problem. Many decisions in restoration are based on common sense guided by historical sensitivity. Very, very big point. When a subfloor or ceiling of an old house is opened up for any reason, it is a good idea to think about other work that may be planned or necessary. I know the projects where the entire floor was ripped up, the subfloor repaired and the floor relaid. A year and a half later, They were trying to figure out how to run the new wiring around the house. If an area is open, consider future needs for wiring. Doorbells, security systems, plumbing, insulation, and other services. When utilities are run through a floor system, make sure the structural integrity, integrity is not compromised. It is common to find other trades notching posts for their work. The proper way to pass a wire or a pipe through a joist is to drill a hole in its center in the drawing. The center of the beam is a point of zero load, which is to say that it is doing very little work. So again, if, if, we're, if we need to put this hole, draw it and put it on the center of the floor joist where the load is, is uh, you know is minimal. So don't put it on the bottom. When you put it very close to the bottom edge of the floor joist, it's just like scoring a piece of glass it tends to want to break there so you, you lose a lot of the the rigidity so several small holes are preferable to a larger hole so let's talk about some common repairs as for floor problems squeaks are probably at the top of the list and everybody's list i assume loose boards are often um, the cause of these squeaks and trim head drywall screws that People who put on are very affected for tightening, up, tightening these up. One method is to have a person, the heavier the better, walk randomly around the squeaky area. A second person watches carefully for board movement and marks the spots. Draw a small pilot hole for shank and a second for the head so it does not change the surface of the board. Then drive in a screw. Sometimes having the heavy person stand on a loose board is a help. It is best not to get too carried away with screws, though, however. If the problem is structural, you'll have to get underneath the floor to quiet the squeaks in this direction. When there is damage that requires replacing one or more boards, it is important to stagger the joints. Floors were never laid with adjacent boards ending in a line. I mean that, I mean on the same joist. that's what we're referring to here. Not only does this stand out visually, it is an invitation, an invitation to squeaks. So at, at the same time, you do, you do want to retain this much historical material as possible. So it's a balancing act. Choose a, a board length that is appropriate for the pattern of the room. When possible, you want to have both ends of the board end on a joist. The section of the board being removed is usually destroyed in the process. Drawing a line at each end, drill three holes to get started and chisel along the line. Then saw down the middle to split the board and remove the pieces any way you can. If you need only one piece of floor material to complete the repair, you can sometimes steal it under a cabinet or the back of a closet. Old floors with numerous narrow, loose, or missing pieces along the edge of each board have probably been sanded a few too many times. These gaps, usually a quarter inch wide, have are broken shoulders. Every time a floor is sanded about a sixteenth of an inch, there's that much wood removed. As the shoulder gets thinner, it starts to break. At that point, the structure of the top floor starts to go. The boards begin to move more nails start coming out and it's a lot of work to repair. A severely over sanded floor has to be replaced if it is to be functional. Think twice before you sand your floor too excessively. Broken shoulders can be replaced with long strips or patch with a Dutchman, which is a wood patch best made of the same species of wood. Cut out the damaged area and glue the Dutchman in place. You can use yellow carpenter glue in um, Elmer's glue or type-on wood glue works well for homeowners, is what I'm saying. Um, and at real restoration, I would use high glue. Glue the patch down and the damaged end of the board, not to the adjacent board. Clamp the Dutchman in place with this uh, a shim shingle slid beneath the boards and a few finished nails in pre-drilled holes. Do not drive the nails home. After the glue dries, they can be pulled out, leaving two very small holes to be puttied. There are no easy solutions to deep scratches and dents, especially those running across several boards. Sometimes they can be drawn out a bit with moist heat, as in lifting a dent in a piece of furniture. Careful work with a cabinet scraper can ease the appearance of a scratch or dent without affecting neighboring areas. It is not a good idea to sand the whole floor to remove a few marks. For the long run, make sure furniture is carried when moved or has casters, and there is protection under chairs. High heels are probably the chief troublemaker on floors. Finishing is a subject unto itself, and we're not going to touch on it here. But suffice it to say that getting a newly replaced floorboards to match the rest of the floor and touching up problem areas of critical aspects of wood repair it is important to consider the whole floor and say foolish to match and repair to a dirty area that will be clean next year get the old wood in the condition you want then bring the repaired areas up to match the original beauty it is an odd notion that some of the best restoration work is practically invisible but that is what sets it apart from so much new housework that we see today, and it's uh, very intolerable at times. So, Greg Perry signing out, The Historic Preservationist.